Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 20 From Latitude 47 Degrees 24 to Longitude 17 Degrees 28 In consequence of the storm, we had been thrown eastward once more. All hope of escape on the shores of New York or St. Lawrence had faded away, and poor Ned, in despair, had isolated himself like Captain Nemo. Conseil and I, however, never left each other. I said that the Nautilus had gone aside to the east. I should have said, to be more exact, the northeast. For some days it wandered first on the surface and then beneath it, amid those fogs so dreaded by sailors. What accidents are due to these thick fogs? What shocks upon these reefs when the wind drowns the breaking of the waves? What collisions between vessels in spite of their warning lights, whistles, and alarm bells? And the bottom of these seas look like a field of battle, where still lie all the conquered of the ocean, some old and already encrusted, others fresh and reflecting from their iron bands and copper plates the brilliancy of our lantern. On the 15th of May, we were at the extreme south of the Bank of Newfoundland. This bank consists of large heaps of organic matter, brought either from the equator by the Gulf Stream or from the North Pole by the countercurrent of cold water which skirts the American coast. There also are heaped up those erratic blocks which are carried along by the broken ice, and close by a vast charnel house of mollusks which perish here by millions. The depth of the sea is not great at Newfoundland, not more than some hundreds of fathoms, but towards the south is a depression of 1,500 fathoms. There the Gulf Stream widens. It loses some of its speed and some of its temperature, but it becomes a sea. It was on the 17th of May, about 500 miles from Heart's Content, at a depth of more than 1,400 fathoms, that I saw the electric cable lying on the bottom. Conseil, to whom I had not mentioned it, thought at first that it was a gigantic sea serpent. But I undeceived the worthy fellow, and by way of consolation related several particulars in the laying of this cable. The first one was laid in the years 1857 and 1858, but after transmitting about 400 telegrams, would not act any longer. In 1863, the engineers constructed another one, measuring 2,000 miles in length and weighing 4,500 tons, which was embarked on the Great Eastern. This attempt also failed. On the 25th of May, the Nautilus, being at a depth of more than 1,918 fathoms, 
was on the precise spot where the rupture occurred which ruined the enterprise. It was within 638 miles of the coast of Ireland, and at half-past two in the afternoon they discovered that communication with Europe had ceased. The electricians on board resolved to cut the cable before fishing it up, and at eleven o'clock at night they had recovered the damaged part. They made another point and spliced it, and it was once more submerged. But some days after it broke again, and in the depths of the ocean could not be recaptured. The Americans, however, were not discouraged. Cyrus Field, the bold promoter of the enterprise, as he had sunk all his own fortune, set a new subscription on foot, which was at once answered, and another cable was constructed on better principles. The bundles of conducting wires were each enveloped in gutta-percha and protected by a wadding of hemp contained in a metallic covering. The Great Eastern sailed on the 13th of July, 1866. The operation worked well, but one incident occurred. Several times on enrolling the cable, they observed that nails had recently been forced into it, evidently with the motive of destroying it. Captain Anderson, the officers and engineers, consulted together and had it posted up that, if the offender was surprised on board, he would be thrown without further trial into the sea. From that time, the criminal attempt was never repeated. On the 23rd of July, the Great Eastern was not more than 500 miles from Newfoundland when they telegraphed from Ireland the news of the armistice concluded between Prussia and Austria. On the 27th, in the midst of heavy fogs, they reached the port of Hart's Content. The enterprise was successfully terminated, and for its first dispatch, young America addressed old Europe in these words of wisdom so rarely understood. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I did not expect to find the electric cable in its primitive state, such as it was on leaving the manufactory. The long serpent, covered with the remains of shells, was encrusted with a strong coating which served as a protection against all boring mollusks. It lay quietly, sheltered from the motions of the sea, and under a favorable pressure for the transmission of the electric spark, which passes from Europe to America in .32 of a second. Doubtless this cable will last for a great length of time, for they find that the gutta percha covering is improved by the seawater. Besides, on this level, so well chosen, the cable is never so deeply submerged as to cause it to break. The Nautilus followed it to the lowest depth, which was more than 2,212 fathoms, and there it lay, without any anchorage. And then we reached the spot where the accident had taken place in 1863. The bottom of the ocean then formed a valley about a hundred miles broad, in which Mont Blanc might have been placed without its summit appearing above the waves. This valley is closed at the east by a perpendicular wall more than 2,000 yards high. We arrived there on the 28th of May, and the Nautilus was then not more than 120 miles from Ireland. Was Captain Nemo going to land on the British Isles? No. To my great surprise, he made for the south, once more coming back towards European seas. In rounding the Emerald Isle, for one instant, 
I caught sight of Cape Clear, and the light which guides the thousands of vessels leaving Glasgow or Liverpool. An important question then arose in my mind. Did the Nautilus dare entangle itself in the Manch? Ned Land did not cease to question me. How could I answer? Captain Nemo remained invisible. After having shown the Canadian a glimpse of American shores, was he going to show me the coast of France? But the Nautilus was still going southward. On the 30th of May, it passed in sight of Land's End, between the extreme point of England and the Scilly Isles, which were left to starboard. If we wished to enter the Manche, he must go straight to the east. He did not do so. During the whole of the 31st of May, the Nautilus described a series of circles on the water, which greatly interested me. It seemed to be seeking a spot it had some trouble in finding. At noon, Captain Nemo himself came to work the ship's log. He spoke no word to me, but seemed gloomier than ever. What could sadden him thus? Was it his proximity to European shores? Had he some recollections of his abandoned country? If not, what did he feel? Remorse or regret? For a long while this thought haunted my mind, and I had a kind of presentiment that before long chance would betray the captain's secrets. The next day, the first of June, the Nautilus continued the same process. It was evidently seeking some particular spot in the ocean. Captain Nemo took the sun's altitude as he had done the day before. The sea was beautiful, the sky clear. About eight miles to the east, a large steam vessel could be discerned on the horizon. No flag fluttered from its mast, and I could not discover its nationality. Some minutes before the sun passed the meridian, Captain Nemo took his sextant and watched with great attention. The perfect rest of the water greatly helped the operation. The Nautilus was motionless. It neither rolled nor pitched. I was on the platform when the altitude was taken, and the captain pronounced these words, It is here. He turned and went below. Had he seen the vessel which was changing its course and seemed to be nearing us? I could not tell. I returned to the saloon. The panels closed. I heard the hissing of the water in the reservoirs. The Nautilus began to sink, following a vertical line, for its screw communicated no motion to it. Some minutes later, it stopped at a depth of more than 420 fathoms, resting on the ground. The luminous ceiling was darkened, then the panels were opened, and through the glass I saw the sea brilliantly illuminated by the rays of our lantern for at least half a mile round us. I looked to the port side and saw nothing but an immensity of quiet waters, but to starboard on the bottom appeared a large protuberance which at once attracted my attention. One would have thought it a ruin buried under a coating of white shells much resembling a covering of snow. Upon examining the mass attentively, I could recognize the ever-thickening form of a vessel bare of its masts, which must have sunk. It certainly belonged to past times. This wreck, to be thus encrusted with the lime of the water, 
must already be able to count many years past at the bottom of the ocean. What was this vessel? Why did the Nautilus visit its tomb? Could it have been aught but a shipwreck which had drawn it under the water? I knew not what to think. When near me, in a slow voice, I heard Captain Nemo say, At one time this ship was called the Marseillaise. It carried seventy-four guns and was launched in 1762. In 1778, the 13th of August, it fought boldly against the Preston. In 1799, on the 4th of July, it was at the taking of Grenada. In 1781, on the 5th of September, it took part in the Battle of Combe de Grasse in Chesapeake Bay. In 1794, the French Republic changed its name. On the 16th of April in the same year, it joined the squadron at Brest, being entrusted with the escort of a cargo of corn coming from America, under the command of Admiral Van Stiebel. On the 11th and 12th of the second year, this squadron fell in with an English vessel. Sir, today is the first day of June 1868. It is now 74 years ago, day for day, on this spot, in latitude 47 degrees 24, longitude 17 degrees 28, that this vessel, after fighting heroically, losing its three masts, with the water in its hold, and the third of its crew disabled, preferred sinking with its 356 sailors to surrendering, and nailing its colors to the poop, disappeared under the waves to the cry of long live the Republic. The Avenger, I exclaimed. Yes, sir, the Avenger. A good name, muttered Captain Nemo, crossing his arms. Chapter 21. A Hecatomb. The way of describing this unlooked-for scene, the history of the Patriot ship, told it first so coldly, and the emotion with which the strange man pronounced the last words, the name of the Avenger, the significance of which could not escape me, all impressed itself deeply on my mind. My eyes did not leave the captain, who, with his hand stretched out to see was watching with a glowing eye the glorious wreck. Perhaps I was never to know who he was, from whence he came, or where he was going to. But I saw the man move, and apart from the savant. It was no common misanthropy which had shut Captain Nemo and his companions within the Nautilus, but a hatred, either monstrous or sublime, which time could never weaken. Did this hatred still seek for vengeance? The future would soon teach me that. But the Nautilus was rising slowly to the surface of the sea, and the form of the Avenger disappeared by degrees from my sight. Soon a slight rolling told me that we were in the open air. At that moment a dull boom was heard. I looked at the captain. He did not move. "'Captain,' said I. He did not answer. I left him and mounted the platform. Conseil and the Canadian were already there. "'Where did that sound come from?' I asked. "'It was a gunshot,' replied Ned Land. "'I looked in the direction of the vessel I had already seen. "'It was nearing the Nautilus, "'and we could see that it was putting on steam. "'It was within six miles of us. "'What is that ship, Ned?' "'By its rigging and the height of its lower masts,' "'said the Canadian, 
I bet she's a ship of war. May it reach us, and if necessary, sink this cursed Nautilus. Friend Ned, replied Conseil, what harm can it do to the Nautilus? Can it attack beneath the waves? Can it cannonade us at the bottom of the sea? Tell me, Ned, said I, can you recognize what country she belongs to? The Canadian knitted his eyebrows, dropped his eyelids, and screwed up the corners of his eyes, and for a few moments fixed a piercing look upon the vessel. No, sir, he replied, I cannot tell what nation she belongs to, for she shows no colors. But I can declare she is a man of war, for a long pennant flutters from her main mast. For a quarter of an hour we watched the ship which was steaming towards us, I could not, however, believe that she could see the Nautilus from that distance, and still less that she could know what this submarine engine was. Soon the Canadian informed me that she was a large armored two-decker ram. A thick black smoke was pouring from her two funnels. Her closely furled sails were stopped to her yards. She hoisted no flag at her mizzen peak. The distance prevented us from distinguishing the colors of her pennant, which floated like a thin ribbon. She advanced rapidly. If Captain Nemo allowed her to approach, there is a chance of salvation for us. Sir, said Ned Land, if that vessel passes within a mile of us, I shall throw myself into the sea, and I should advise you to do the same. I did not reply to the Canadian's suggestion, but continued watching the ship, whether English... French, American, or Russian, should be sure to take us in if we could only reach her. Presently, a white smoke burst from the forepart of the vessel. Some seconds after, the water, agitated by the fall of a heavy body, splashed the stern of the Nautilus, and shortly afterwards, a loud explosion struck my ear. "'What? They are firing at us!' I exclaimed. "'So please you, sir,' said Ned, they have recognized the unicorn, and they are firing at us. But, I exclaimed, surely they can see that there are men in the case. It is perhaps because of that, replied Ned Land, looking at me. A whole flood of light burst upon my mind. Doubtless they knew now how to believe the stories of the pretended monster. No doubt, on board the Abraham Lincoln, when the Canadian struck it with the harpoon, Commander Farragut had recognized in the supposed narwhal a submarine vessel more dangerous than a supernatural cetacean. Yes, it must have been so, and on every sea they were now seeking this engine of destruction. Terrible indeed, if, as we supposed, Captain Nemo employed the Nautilus in works of vengeance. On the night we were imprisoned in that cell in the midst of the Indian Ocean, had he not attacked some vessel the man, buried in the coral cemetery, had he not been a victim to the shock caused by the Nautilus. Yes, I repeat it, it must be so. One part of the mysterious existence of Captain Nemo had been unveiled, and if his identity had not been recognized, at least the nations united against him were no longer hunting a chimerical creature, but a man who had vowed a deadly hatred against them all the formidable past rose before me. Instead of meeting friends on board the approaching ship, we could only expect pitiless enemies. But the shot rattled about us. 
Some of them struck the sea and ricocheted, losing themselves in the distance. But none touched the Nautilus. The vessel was not more than three miles from us. In spite of the serious cannonade, Captain Nemo did not appear on the platform. But if one of the conical projectiles had struck the shell of the Nautilus, it would have been fatal. The Canadian then said, "'Sir, we must do all we can to get out of this dilemma. "'Let us signal them. "'They will then, perhaps, understand that we are honest folks.' "'Ned Land took his handkerchief to wave in the air, "'but he had scarcely displayed it when he was struck down by an iron hand "'and fell in spite of his great strength upon the deck. "'Fool!' exclaimed the captain. "'Do you wish to be pierced by the spur of the Nautilus "'before it is hurled at this vessel?' Captain Nemo was terrible to hear. He was still more terrible to see. His face was deadly pale, with a spasm at his heart. For an instant, it must have ceased to beat. His pupils were fearfully contracted. He did not speak. He roared, as, with his body thrown forward, he wrung the Canadian's shoulders. Then, leaving him and turning to the ship of war, whose shot was still raining around him, he exclaimed with a powerful voice, "'Ah, ship of an accursed nation, you know who I am. I do not want your colors to know you by. Look, and I will show you mine.' And on the fore part of the platform, Captain Nemo unfurled a black flag, similar to the one he had placed at the South Pole. At that moment a shot struck the shell of the Nautilus obliquely without piercing it, and rebounding near the captain was lost in the sea. He shrugged his shoulders, and addressing me, said shortly, "'Go down, you and your companions. Go down.' "'Sir,' I cried, "'are you going to attack this vessel?' "'Sir, I am going to sink it.' "'You will not do that.' "'I shall do it,' he replied coldly, "'and I advise you not to judge me, sir. "'Fate has shown you what you ought not to have seen.' The attack has begun. Go down. What is this vessel? You do not know? Very well, so much the better. Its nationality to you, at least, will be a secret. Go down. We could but obey. About fifteen of the sailors surrounded the captain, looking with implacable hatred at the vessel nearing them. One could feel that the same desire of vengeance animated every soul, I went down at the moment another projectile struck the Nautilus, and I heard the captain exclaim, Strike, mad vessel, shower your useless shot, and then you will not escape the spur of the Nautilus. But it is not here that you shall perish. I would not have your ruins mingle with those of the Avenger. I reached my room. The captain and his second had remained on the platform, the screw was set in motion, and the Nautilus, moving with speed, was soon beyond the reach of the ship's guns. But the pursuit continued, and Captain Nemo contented himself with keeping his distance. About four in the afternoon, being no longer able to contain my impatience, I went to the central staircase. The panel was open, and I ventured onto the platform. The captain was still walking up and down, with an agitated step, he was looking at the ship, which was five or six miles to leeward. He was going round it like a wild beast, and drawing it eastward, he allowed them to pursue. 
but he did not attack. Perhaps he still hesitated. I wished to mediate once more. But I had scarcely spoken when Captain Nemo imposed silence, saying, I am the law, and I am the judge. I am the oppressed, and there is the oppressor. Through him I have lost all that I loved, cherished, and venerated. Country, wife, children, father, and mother. I saw all perish. All that I hate is there. Say no more. I cast a last look at the man of war, which was putting on steam, and rejoined Ned and Conseil. "'We will fly!' I exclaimed. "'Good!' said Ned Land. "'What is this vessel?' "'I do not know, but whatever it is, it will be sunk before night. "'In any case, it is better to perish with it "'than be made accomplices in a retaliation "'the justice of which we cannot judge.' "'That is my opinion, too,' said Ned Land, coolly. "'Let us wait for night.' "'Night arrived.' Deep silence reigned on board. The compass showed that the Nautilus had not altered its course. It was on the surface, rolling slightly. My companions and I resolved to fly when the vessel should be near enough, either to hear us or to see us. For the moon, which would be full in two or three days, shone brightly. Once on board the ship, if we could not prevent the blow, which threatened it, we could... "'at least we would do all that circumstances would allow. "'Several times I thought the Nautilus was preparing for attack, "'but Captain Nemo contented himself with allowing his adversary to approach, "'and then fled once more before it. "'Part of the night passed without any incident. "'We watched the opportunity for action. "'We spoke little, for we were too much moved. "'Ned Land would have thrown himself into the sea, "'but I forced him to wait.' According to my idea, the Nautilus would attack the ship at her waterline, and then it would not only be possible, but easy to fly. At three in the morning, full of uneasiness, I mounted the platform. Captain Nemo had not left it. He was standing at the forepart near his flag, which a slight breeze displayed above his head. He did not take his eyes from the vessel. The intensity of his look seemed to attract and fascinate and draw it onward more surely than if he had been towing it. The moon was then passing the meridian. Jupiter was rising in the east. Amid this peaceful scene of nature, sky and ocean rivaled each other in tranquility, the sea offering to the orbs of night the finest mirror they could ever have in which to reflect their image. As I thought of the deep calm of these elements compared with all those passions brooding imperceptibly within the Nautilus, I shuddered. The vessel was within two miles of us. It was ever nearing that phosphorescent light which showed the presence of the Nautilus. I could see its green and red lights and its white lantern hanging from the large foremast. An indistinct vibration quivered through its rigging, showing that the furnaces were heated to the uttermost. Sheaves of sparks and red ashes flew from the funnels, shining in the atmosphere like stars. I remained thus until six in the morning, without Captain Nemo noticing me. The ship stood about a mile and a half from us, and with the first dawn of day, the firing began afresh. The moment could not be far off when, the Nautilus attacking its adversary, 
my companions and myself should forever leave this man. I was preparing to go down to remind them when the second mounted the platform accompanied by several sailors. Captain Nemo either did not or would not see them. Some steps were taken, which might be called the signal for action. They were very simple. The iron balustrade around the platform was lowered, and the lantern and pilot cages were pushed within the shell until they were flush with the deck. The long surface of the steel cigar no longer offered a single point to check its maneuvers. I returned to the saloon. The Nautilus still floated. Some streaks of light were filtering through the liquid beds. With the undulations of the waves, the windows were brightened by the red streaks of the rising sun, and this dreadful day of the 2nd of June had dawned. At five o'clock, the log showed that the speed of the Nautilus was slackening, and I knew that it was allowing them to draw nearer. Besides, the reports were heard more distinctly, and the projectiles, laboring through the ambient water, were extinguished with a strange hissing noise. "'My friends,' said I, "'the moment has come. "'One grasp of the hand, and may God protect us.' "'Ned Land was resolute, Conseil calm, "'myself so nervous that I knew not how to contain myself. "'We all passed into the library. "'But the moment I pushed the door opening onto the central staircase, "'I heard the upper panel close sharply. "'The Canadian rushed onto the stairs, but I stopped him, a well-known hissing noise told me that the water was running into the reservoirs, and in a few minutes the Nautilus was some yards beneath the surface of the waves. I understood the maneuver. It was too late to act. The Nautilus did not wish to strike at the impenetrable cuirass, but below the waterline, where the metallic covering no longer protected it. We were again imprisoned, "'unwilling witnesses of the dreadful drama that was preparing. "'We had scarcely time to reflect. "'Taking refuge in my room, we looked at each other without speaking. "'A deep stupor had taken hold of my mind. "'Thought seemed to stand still. "'I was in that painful state of expectation preceding a dreadful report. "'I waited. I listened. "'Every sense was merged in that of hearing.' The speed of the Nautilus was accelerated. It was preparing to rush. The whole ship trembled. Suddenly I screamed. I felt the shock, but comparatively light. I felt the penetrating power of the steel spur. I heard rattlings and scrapings. But the Nautilus, carried along by its propelling power, passed through the mass of the vessel like a needle through sailcloth. I could stand it no longer. Mad out of my mind, I rushed from my room into the saloon. Captain Nemo was there, mute, gloomy, implacable. He was looking through the port panel. A large mass cast a shadow on the water, and, that it might lose nothing of her agony, the Nautilus was going down into the abyss with her. Ten yards from me I saw the open shell through which the water was rushing with the noise of thunder, then the double line of guns and the netting. The bridge was covered with black, agitated shadows. The water was rising. The poor creatures were crowding the rat lines, clinging to the masts, struggling under the water. It was a human ant heap overtaken by the sea. 
paralyzed, stiffened with anguish, my hair standing on end, with eyes wide open, panting, without breath and without voice, I too was watching. An irresistible attraction glued me to the glass. Suddenly, an explosion took place. The compressed air blew up her decks, as if the magazines had caught fire. Then the unfortunate vessel sank more rapidly. Her topmast, laden with victims, now appeared. Then her spars, bending under the weight of men. And last of all, the top of her mainmast. Then the dark mass disappeared, and with it the dead crew, drawn down by the strong eddy. I turned to Captain Nemo, that terrible avenger, a perfect archangel of hatred, was still looking. When all was over, he turned to his room, opened the door, and entered. I followed him with my eyes. On the end wall, beneath his heroes, I saw the portrait of a woman, still young, and two little children. Captain Nemo looked at them for some moments, stretched his arms towards them, and kneeling down, burst into deep sobs. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.